coming up in this episode of Finding Common Ground. Everyone want to be the leader. I want to be the leader. Pick me. I'm it. I'm it. I'm it. But sometimes you have to put the work in to be it or develop in it. Leadership is a top system, and uh, Boy Scouts is probably the best sport. General self-discipline. So you were you were responsible for doing all of this. They weren't going to push you through. You had to pull yourself through, and you had to prove yourself at every step. Well, is he better looking than the good-looking black man? Well, you're going to have to decide that for you. You're going to be holding a gun a little later. I don't want to get in the middle of that. There are two sides to every coin. How do we deal with racial issues when they affect relationships? Finding common ground on all those issues that we come against. There's black and there's white. And I think as Christians, we have to learn how to get together because we're not in heaven. I've met more interesting people just by God just bringing them in. Republicans and Democrats. But a lot of times when it comes to race and it comes to culture and it comes to perception, Even as Christians, we don't always understand. We look at it through our lenses. There's Bill. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland called Parma. Uh, Any black people in Parma? There was not one. Not one black person, Bill? Not one. Come on, Bill, you got to have one, a token black person, a token. And there's Odell. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, public housing, single mom, divorced single mom with four kids. And I came up through segregation and all that kind of stuff. If a black person drove through the town, the police would stop and escort them out. Bill and Odell are finding common ground. A part of what we have to do is listen to each other, find the common ground, and question, not questioning you like you're on a witness stand, but questioning you for a better understanding. Father God, we just come to you saying thank you for all your grace and your mercy. Just thank you for just accepting us as we are. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, for dying for our sins. God, thank you for this great country that you bless us with that we call America. Thank you for on our notes and God we trust. God, from time to time, like always, we get a little off path, but again, your grace and your mercy. The best country in the world because in God we trust. Amen. Dearly, Father, just thank you for this day and the morning hunt we had. And we're looking forward to the afternoon hunt. We're we're here in God's country at John Wilson's uh, hunt camp in Sparta, North Carolina. Lord, just thank you for the beauty that we saw this morning as the sun came up. And we're looking forward to watching the sunset. Uh, Lord, thank you for uh, Josh and his service to our country. Thank you for the Boy Scouts and the things they do with leadership. And now watch over us and give us safety as we drive home tonight. Amen. Amen. Now, Bill. Yes, sir. How does a black boy from the projects of Charleston, South Carolina, end up 4,000 feet above sea level, freezing his butt off in Laurel Springs, North Carolina, and the population of black folks in Laurel Springs is one because I'm here? Yeah. I, now, we, how does that happen? Well, I, I got a little nervous, and we shared a deer stand, right? Yeah. And you had a gun in your hand. Yeah, so a black yeah. man with, with a, a gun, gun that's cold. in Laurel Springs, and it's cold up there, yeah. and I'm on the, but the, on top of the there's no mountains in the projects, Bill. There's no mountains in the projects. That was a mountain we went up, wasn't it? That was a mountain we went up, my Yeah, man. Yeah, we walked it one time. Ah, 
we, we're going to have to define we, <laughs> you know, but the last time I was about 60 pounds heavier and that was like one of those come to Jesus moments. <laughs> so this time it was different. But the good thing about it is that when you go up there and you just listen and just listen to nature, listen to God, just listen and just slow everything down because many of us have so much going on in our lives just to slow things down a little bit, not stop it, but just slow it down is a blessing. And just sitting around the campfire, aka the fireplace last night and going out getting wood and understanding that wood equals fire, fire equals heat, but you have to put the work before the results. Yeah. And this house doesn't have central heat. That fireplace is what heats us. And when, I don't know, when you went upstairs, I went upstairs. Yes. It was cold up there. Yeah, but hey, guess what? Sometimes you have to work for results. Yeah, that's true. Speaking of working, we have a great guest today mm -hmm. and talk about leadership and how people, everyone want to be the leader. I want to be the leader. Pick me. I'm it. I'm it. I'm it. But sometimes you have to put the work in to be it or develop in it. Is there such a, such a thing, Bill, as a born leader? No. The leadership is a taught system, so, and uh, Boy Scouts is probably the best sport. Josh is a product of the Boy Scouts and leadership, and we're going to let him talk about that. The, uh, you know, um, I think that Josh, well, I don't think, I know, Josh was featured in the Boy Scout alumni mm -hmm. website as uh, for Veterans Week. Well, wait a minute now. You got like 7.5 million alumni. Yeah. And, and Josh is the man. Out he, of 7.5 million? Yeah, he was chosen. Well, is he, be is he better looking than the good looking black man? Well, you're going to have to decide that for you. <laughs> you're going to be holding a gun a little later. I don't want to get in the middle of that. <laughs> Josh, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me today. It's a pleasure. Yeah, Josh, uh, tell us a little bit about your background. And it, it, we pronounce your name Batan. Did I pronounce that right? Uh, Batten, just like batten down the hatches. Okay, just like it says, batten down the hatches. Very good. Mm -hmm. Well, Josh, welcome to the program. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we want to get into some of the leadership stuff. Uh, sure thing. Well, I grew up in sort of rural West Virginia, so eastern panhandle, West Virginia. Um, small town, America, just like any place else. Uh, great values, great people. Uh, and my father was kind of an avid outdoorsman. Mm. So that, that sort of got me started in the outdoor realm uh, camping, hunting, fishing, et cetera. That was kind of the, the commonplace activities uh, growing up. Uh, so you mentioned scouting. Of course, scouting is something that I discovered after I got into the fifth grade. Uh, I was never a Cub Scout, so that's our, our lowest level program, the, uh, the youngest program that we have within BSA. Um, so I started as a regular scout and took to the program immediately. Um, obviously because of the outdoor aspects associated with it, uh, the leadership development there. Um, and that kind of started me on my path in life. So I, um, from that point, you know, I sought any kind of leadership, leadership development type activity to include ROTC in high school, Civil Air Patrol, other activities like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was no surprise right out of high school, I joined the military. And so I joined the Army, went to the Army's Honor Guard at Fort Myer. I uh, worked in Arlington Cemetery, a number of jobs there to include being a sentinel of the tomb of the unknown soldier. Um, after that, went to college, learned how to read and write finally, and started, <laughs> yeah, joined the uh, professional working world. 
Uh, started out as a contractor in the DC area. I stay right in the DC area because the opportunities here are like no other place on earth, especially if you're a public servant minded individual. I mean, this is really the center of public service, if you will. Uh, started out as a contractor working for the Navy and the Air Force, uh, went on to go into federal service with uh, DIA, a couple of other entities, uh, Department of the Army working in the Pentagon. Uh, I was a chief technology officer for a small uh, agency over in Department of Transportation as well. And I've had a couple of uh, commercial type executive positions mixed in there. So it's really, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's really sort of all over the place as far as the career goes, but the common thread has been public service and public safety. Mm -hmm. Are you, are you uh, today, what are you doing? You're working as a contractor or? Uh, I have a small consulting firm. So I, yeah, um, right now I am a team of one. Uh, Previously (laughs) I had a, uh, you know, a similar type arrangement where I was a you know, one of seven. So we had uh, six other employees in the company before. Uh, this time I decided to go as a 1099 and just see where I could lend my expertise that I've picked up over the years and see if I can make the world better. And it's IT related? Uh, not really. It's more management, um, like executive resource and workforce management, uh, mm-hmm. long-term planning, strategic planning, uh, finding efficiencies and becoming more effective with execution of your mission within whatever your organization is. That's great. Well, let's plug it. Give us a website where people, if they want to get in touch with you, can do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, my website, believe it or not, is not set up. So it's okay. probably not the best uh, course of action there. Uh, I am on LinkedIn. I have a public profile, uh, Batten Global LLC. Okay. So if anybody wants to take a look there, you know, please feel free to connect or follow me on LinkedIn. Okay, very good. That's a good place to do it. That's an mm-hmm. excellent LinkedIn's a good place. <clears throat> and uh, the so how did you get in scouting? Your dad took you and said you're going to be a scout? No, we had a joint scouting day at the elementary school. Uh-huh. So I saw, yeah, I saw a couple of scouts walking around, uh, ask a few questions, and I was immediately hooked. My, my father had been in scouts early on, but I think he only made it to Tenderfoot, which is one of the lower ranks, of course. Um, you know, growing up, he didn't have a lot of money, a lot of opportunity as well. So it wasn't something that, you know, really appealed to him. I think he, I remember him telling me he didn't even have a uniform. Hmm. Yeah. He so, grew up in West you know, he, Virginia. go ahead. He grew up in West Virginia. He did. Yeah. So he's probably outdoors doing his outdoors. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, well, John. Let's get to the important things. Now, you grew up hunting. What's the biggest <laughs> buck you've killed? How many pointers there, sir? I'm still in the eight-point club, so I haven't uh, I haven't hit my 10-pointer yet. Okay. I'm looking for him. Well, Bill's got 10-pointers and all this kind of good stuff. Josh, you know, back to what we were talking about before, the young man was stating last night how Scouting just gave him tremendous opportunities to lead, not just someone put him in the position as leader and gave him a title, but gave him opportunities to demonstrate. And then the most unique thing is the other boys in the uh, troop or in the smaller segments, they understood what it was to follow. Because a lot of times we talk about leaders, 
But learning how to lead is one thing, but learning how to follow also. And I'm wanting to think that you can't be a leader if you don't understand and appreciate how it is to be a follower. What's your thoughts on that, sir? I think you're spot on. And one of the great things about the scouting program is just that it teaches you how to lead, but it also teaches you how to follow. And for some people, they just can't let go of the ego. Or once they get that taste of leadership or being the quote unquote boss, it's hard for them to take a step back and let somebody else take center stage and make the decisions. Uh, so I've always sort of appreciated that in the scouting program. And just speaking from someone who's used that over the years, it has helped me immensely. Because uh, there are times that I need to step up and take charge. Uh, there are times that I need my people to step up and take charge and get credit where credit is due. Uh, I, yeah, I also like to mentor and grow people that I'm working either with or who are working for me. And that's a, a great way to do it is have them be a project lead, have them, you know, take a meeting for me with the executives, you know, a big seat at the round table uh, and let them see what it's like. So it prepares them for the next step and gets them in that frame of mind of, oh, here's what I need to do to get ahead. Here's how I need to move forward. Um, and some days I'll even let them take over or I'll wow. take a step back and I'll just be a worker bee, you know, cause well, let's, let's face it. It's fun to do that every once in a while. Well, question for you. Do you remember the exact experience you had when you were first put in charge in scouting where it's like, okay, mm -hmm. Josh or Joshua, whatever they called you at the time, you're it. Do you remember that? I think it was quartermaster. That was the first thing. Uh, and a lot of scouts, that's one of their first you know, tastes of leadership or responsibility. Um, so on the responsibility side, it was quartermaster. That was taking care of all of our troop equipment, everything we had in the closet, everything that we needed for camping, everything we needed for short and long-term camping, cooking, um, the tents, uh, even the library that we had for merit badge books, because we have these little pamphlets, you know, for the merit badges. Uh, that was the first taste of responsibility. Uh, and then from there, it just progressed into the more leading people roles of assistant patrol leader, patrol leader, all the way up through senior patrol leader and beyond. Uh, and at each step, uh, it was kind of a crawl, walk, run method as well. So we didn't, I wasn't thrown right in to right. being in charge. Right. Uh, I had, I had mentors. I had examples to follow from the scouts who had already been there and done that. They would pull you aside when you messed something up and they would cheer you on when you got something right in public. Isn't that the um, right way to do it though? That's the way it should be done. Absolutely. Absolutely. Give them, give them enough freedom to try things and to fail, but pull them aside and don't make a public spectacle, spectacle out of it. Uh, pull them aside and give them some constructive feedback and criticism if needed and help them along that journey. But anytime that they do something great, make sure the world knows about it. Yeah, we we all learn more by our mistakes than by anything else. And, you know, when you do something wrong, you go, boy, I'm not doing that again. And sometimes as a leader, you don't even have to say anything to the person because, you know, they got it. And, uh, you know, Coach Lombardi was great at that. He used very few words uh, when somebody screwed up. I had a buddy that was uh, a center for him and he wanted to make him a long snapper. And this guy didn't want to be a long snapper uh, because at the time you get get beat up pretty bad. And uh, the uh, they were on the 20-yard line, and he was long snapping it back to the punter. And he was so nervous about 
Dick Buckus taking him out <laughs> that he 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 hiked it through the goalpost for a touchback. <laughs> and he figured, oh my gosh, coach is gonna kill me. So he put the big hoodie on, went all the way down with the cheerleaders. You know, a guy was six eight, you know, three hundred pounds, trying to hide in a hoodie. And uh he looks down and, and he sees Coach Lombardi's shoes next to him. And he goes, Oh boy, this isn't gonna be good. And Lombardi told him, he said, uh Jim, his name was Jim. Uh, he said, Jim, uh, I just got one thing to tell you. And he says, yes, sir. What is that, sir? He said, I didn't know you were that strong. <laughs> and he just walked away. He got the message. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it, being a leader is a learned skill. You know, people say, oh, you're born a leader. Oh, you might be born with certain tra traits that will lead to leadership, but you've really got to fail at leadership to learn the rules in, in that, you know, um, scouting you and I are both Eagle Scouts and we've gone through scouting and you know when you you come in a meeting or you're in a situation and none of us wear it on our sleeve but as you talk about to the individual and scouting may come up it may be because you have a shirt on that says BSA or I have a lapel pin or something very subtle and they say oh were you in Scouts yeah well where were you in Scouts and then you start camping and telling your your you, you remember the worst campouts, <laughs> the ones that were freezing cold. You didn't bring enough food or something, you know. And uh, but then eventually you get to, you know, you don't want to embarrass anybody. You said, well, are you an eagle? We don't we don't do that because if somebody only went to life, that's that's a hurt. Yeah. But, you know, let me ask you two gentlemen something. Being an eagle is a big deal. Let's not downplay that either. I know you don't want to throw it in anybody's face, but I see eagles like this and I'm not. So let me say this. I think it takes a special leader to lead leaders. Let me just say that again. I think it takes a special leader to lead leaders. And I think being an eagle is a special leader. Am I wrong? No, I think you're right. And how many eagles were on the honor guard that you were? I, a surprising number. And to the humility point that you brought up, uh, I had no idea until I had been down there for six or nine months. Wow. That I had so many fellow Eagle Scouts with me. And to give it some uh, sense of scale, um, you know, the Army is huge. The infantry is a little less huge. The Honor Guard at Fort Myer, I don't know what the total force strength is these days, but probably 12, 1400 individuals. And the Honor Guard that was down at the Too Many Unknown Soldier at the time was about 30. So it's a very small number. But if you think of it like a pyramid of how you volunteered and the standards you had to meet over time. Um, not to say it was the cream of the crop, but they were the people that stuck with it. The ones that had dedication, the ones that had sort of that mental and physical fortitude, you know, to see things through the self-discipline to do so. Eagle scout, Eagle scout, Eagle scout. Exactly. Yeah. So it, exactly. it was no surprise. I mean, it, I mean, I was a little surprised at first, but when I thought about it, it's like, well, course there's so many eagle scouts down here it just yeah i mean that's that's where you would hope to find someone who had already hit the pinnacle of a pyramid of you know advancement like that in the past uh in a professional world so it was very refreshing to see that uh, once we all knew we were eagles uh there was a even heightened camaraderie because we had been through two things in our lives that most people you know, don't get a chance to experience. So having that under our belts, we became quite close. 
you know, the uh, let's let's drill into the honor guard for the two minute unknown soldier for a little bit. Uh, let's let's assume some of our listeners, because uh, we're in 40 countries, don't know about the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. So let's start with that. And what's the purpose of it? You know, is there someone in the tomb and why do you protect it? So let's go ahead and unpack that. Sure. So uh, Armistice Day, uh, November 11th, 1921. Uh, that's when we had a unknown soldier who was interred in Arlington National Cemetery. And that represented all of the unknown soldiers, uh, American forces from World War I. Obviously, we can't inter all of them in the cemetery and pay homage to them. Uh, but we had one as a representative. And there were multiple other countries that the, did the same thing around the world. Uh, that was a, a wonderful thing, had a big ceremony. Right after that, uh, the number of people visiting the tomb became a little bit hard to manage. Wow. And the uh, unfortunately, the side effect of that was souvenirs. People wanted to come and take a little souvenir home with them. So they would chip a little piece off of, at the time, there was just the base to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. So it was a big flat area that the soldier was interred in underneath. So they'd chip a little bit of the stone away and take that with them. Um, obviously, we didn't want anything to happen to it. So they started with a uh, kind of a, a civilian guard, just a night watchman, if you will. And that progressed over time into a military guard and then a 24-hour military guard. And it's really America's shrine to all of its fallen soldiers. Wow. Uh, unknown or known. Uh, in this case, it really has the emphasis on those unknown soldiers, uh, which hopefully we won't have any more in the future due to uh, advancements in technology, DNA identification, et cetera. Um, but we do have uh, three who are interred in Arlington at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier right now. We did have a fourth. Uh, he was a Vietnam soldier, an airman who was identified, and he's now buried out in St. Louis. So he was, uh, he was interred there in 1984 and then disinterred and uh, reburied out you know, with his family in St. Louis. Uh, so that's kind of a good indicator. We're probably not going to have any more. As I said, hopefully not. Uh, but it's still a, a massive draw for uh, tourists in the D.C. area. Anybody who comes to D.C., they'd like to come see Arlington National Cemetery. Uh, one of the top two or three things that you want to see there, Kennedy Gravesite, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, uh, Arlington House, the big mansion up on the hill. Uh, so to any of the listeners, if you do come in the D.C. area, Arlington National Cemetery should be on your list. It's a it's a wonderful place. It's a memorial to all of our uh, fallen service members, our, our national heroes. And it's just um, it's just an all inspiring type uh, tour for you to take. So I would highly encourage anyone that comes in the area to go to Ar Arlington Cemetery. And the soldiers that guard it are very disciplined. They're trained that how to handle people approaching the tomb, and uh, they got to go. They get they're, they're in all kinds of weather because they're twenty four seven. And how long do you do you guard it for at a time? Is it an hour? Or? It depends on the time of year, and that's mainly based on visitors who will come and they want to see the the changing of the guard. Mm -hmm. So during the summer months when it's really hot, uh, the guard changes every 30 minutes. So a walk 
out in front of the tomb for a sentinel is 30 minutes. And then in the winter time, that increases to about an hour. So we have an hour long walk in the winter. Uh, it's a little easier to stand out in the cold for an hour if you're a visitor to wait for the next guard change than it is to stand out you know, on a polished marble or granite slab for you know, an hour during the summertime in the intense heat of DC and the humidity. Yeah. And uh, tell us about training for that and some of the disciplines you have to endure to be, to have the honor to guard the tomb. So when I went through, it was infantry only. And that's, uh, you know, one of the specialties within the army uh, that has since changed. That's opened up. They started to open that up when I was there uh, toward the end. So we had military police that came in as well. And now I believe it's open up to any specialty or MOS uh, within the army. But to get to the tomb and be a member of the honor guards, uh, it's a, a multi-volunteer process. So you have to volunteer for the army. At my time, I had to volunteer for the infantry. Again, now that's not a requirement. You have to volunteer for the army's honor guard at D.C., and once you go through there, make you know go through their training uh, to the level of satisfaction standard that's needed to be a part of the unit. Uh, then you can try out for the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier to be a part of the guard mount there. Uh, the training when I went through was usually six to nine months, and it was all individualistic and kind of variable based on the the person going through. Uh, you start out where they, you know, they take a look at you. We call that. Uh, the TDY phase. They'll take a look at you and see if you're the right kind of material that they want there. Uh, you have to memorize uh, over the course of your six to nine months of training, you'll have to memorize multiple pages of information about the cemetery. Mm. Uh, they turn you into essentially junior historians for the cemetery, which mm. is kind of a, uh, you know, an interesting side job for the, the guards at the tomb, of the unknown soldier. Uh, also, Uniform standards, as you can imagine, because the uniforms are impeccable. Uh, weapons and drill. So if you've ever seen a guard change at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier or seen a sentinel walking the mats, uh, you can see the perfection that's involved there. Uh, and general self-discipline. So you were, you were responsible for doing all of this. They weren't going to push you through. You had to pull yourself through, and you had to prove yourself at every step. Uh, an example of that would be during the work rotation, uh, let's say there's 30 people at the tomb that's broken down into three groups of 10, three reliefs of 10. And each relief will work 24 hours at a time. And the way that it's set up, you have three 24 hour shifts with days off in between. And then you have a large block of four days, uh, notionally off, but about two and a half of those days are training and preparation for the next work cycle. So you really don't get all that time off. You have to prep your uniforms. You have to prep your shoes, which are all spit shined. That's not core fram that they're wearing on their shoes. You had to practice manual. You had to keep your PT standards up. All of those things that were the standard package uh, for an army soldier. Wow. Wow. That's pretty intense. You know, I thought about something you were saying, Josh. I used to have a mentor, uh, Henry Doctor. Uh, we call him Uncle Henry. He was a lieutenant general in the military, <laughs> in the army. Um, I didn't understand. I ha never had the pleasure of serving, so I didn't understand what a lieutenant general was, just Uncle Henry. And I think he is buried in Arlington National Cemetery. And I remember visiting him. He was working with the um, 
in the Pentagon at the time. But again, it was just Uncle Henry. But I, I thought about something when you all were talking about leaders. Has any of the presidents of the United States ever been an eagle? Yes. Right. Henry Ford. Wow. We need. Oh, sorry, not Henry. Not Henry. <laughs> Listen to me, Gerald Ford. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Yes, we need an eagle in the White House, yep. gentlemen. I'm a stat mm-hmm. of politics, but we need an eagle to land in the White House. <laughs> the eagle has landed, my friends. The eagle has well, landed. Yeah. The uh, you know Rex Tillerson, who was Secretary of State, is an eagle. Uh, governor from Texas was an eagle. I mean, there's a lot of eagles in. In fact, there's an eagle club in the House and the Senate. Oh wow! Yeah. Uh, so you never hear about it. No, you don't. And you know, I, I Josh, I want to get back to your leadership. You know, you teach leadership. Let's let's talk a little bit about that and and how you go about it and 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 how you learned. Your, you, we mentioned scouting being a big part of it, but go ahead. I'm going to give you the floor to talk about that. I I really think it was a uh, trial by fire over time. You know, you mentioned mistakes. You know, and how we learned so much more from mistakes. I you know I kind of laugh. You know, looking back at my career, I must be an expert at this point, because I've had so many mistakes. Uh, yeah, so really it's, um, you know, it's learned the hard way. You know, it's learned, learned through uh, trial and error. It's learned through, you know, let's just see if this works. Uh, and I tell you, if it wasn't for some of the great mentors that I've had over the years and other professionals that I've worked with, uh, some of the great people that have worked for me as well, I, you know, I never would have risen to the levels that I have in the career, and I never would have had any of the organizational successes that I've experienced. So it's, it's really a group effort. It's not like an individual thing. So Bill, to your point, you're, some people are born with, you know, certain traits that help them become leaders. So maybe you're a little more charismatic, you know, maybe you're a, outspoken introvert or just a natural extrovert. You know, you don't mind standing in front of people and talking, you know, whatever those individual traits are. Uh, But at the end of the day, how do you put that together in a package that can convince people to do something or that will teach people to do something better or will lead people from point A to point B or achieve mission mission success? Um, That's really where the the trial and error and the mistakes come into play. Well, Josh, have you ever had a chance to go back to West Virginia and do any training (laughs) there? Or when you go back home, do they see you as little Josh versus the leader you are? Uh, I'm, I'm still little Josh. My mother still has little pet names and, you know, my, uh, I have small kids of my own now. So of course, you know, the grandparents make over the grandkids and, you know, that that's really, it's just that family element when I go back. And honestly, it's kind of refreshing and nice because I, you know, family is pretty important to me. Um, I don't like being in the spotlight. You know, I'm an introvert by nature. You put me in front of a group of people and make me do a speech. And the first thing I do is clam up, you know, it's just, it's not me. Uh, but being that behind the scenes push uh, the voice of reason, the mentor, uh, a solid you know, leader, if you will, to get things done and move something forward. I, that's really my niche. And I've always gravitated towards that and found success there. You know, last night we were sitting around the fire and we were talking about having you on as a guest. And 
John Wilson talked about his his journey to Eagle, and he was an introvert. He, you know, he was not one to be out there out front. And uh, through scouting, he learned how to lead. And you know, I often thought thought a good leader is one that people don't know they're leading. That hmm. it, it's almost transparent. That people say, you know, I'm going to follow that guy or that lady. Uh, you know, whatever it is. And uh, I think that's the sign of a true leader. When you say, you know, um, you know, again, going back to Vince Lombardi, uh, I was talking to uh, Jim Clack, his name was uh, Jim. I said, Jim, how did you guys get so dedicated to, to the coach? And, and he gave you the vision to be as uh, dedicated to the, the game. And he said, we, Coach Lombardi had our trust. Mm. We knew he had our back. If he if he told us we're all going to get in a wheelbarrow and he's going to push it over a tight rope over Niagara Falls, we would have all gotten in that wheelbarrow because we knew he was going to get us there. Yeah. And, you know, that doesn't come by just walking in a room. It takes time. People observe you all the time. Yeah. And they're looking is this person can is he is he going to have my back or is she going to have my back? It's trust. Mm-hmm. And how do you earn the trust of your people? That's why in the scout oath and law, first one out is trustworthy. That's right. You know, it's a foundation for everything. I tell my uh, my children all the time that you know society is where you live. Wow. People people make up society. So you have to understand people. You have to work with people. You have to get along with people. Yep. And if you if you don't understand others, you know, you're always going to be on the outside. You're going to be either an outcast. You're going to be fighting against it instead of working with it. Yep. And you know, it, as you, as you get into being a leader, and somebody does something that you go, "Oh my gosh, what the heck were they thinking?" You know, you've got to sit with them and hear from their lens what they saw why they thought that was a good decision not that you're going to criticize them or you're going to tear them down or anything uh you know if somebody keeps doing something over and over again yeah that's a whole different set kettle of fish but i i find that when people miss make do something that needs to be corrected um it's a teaching moment you know i have a business and when we screw up the first thing I do is call the customer and say, we screwed up, but I'm going to make it right. And, and so we discuss what that means to them to make it right. Then I see if I can do that. Okay. And sometimes I have to refund money. Sometimes I have to give them a free training. Pro- you know, it depends what it is. Sometimes they're just real happy that I called and acknowledged it. Uh, and uh, so that's it. Hey, we got another guest in here, John Wilson. John, Eagle, Eagle Scout, another Eagle Scout. John, introduce yourself. Uh, John Wilson, Eagle Scout. Um, we've been doing a little hunting this weekend, and uh, I was kind of listening in the background. Um, it, Odell wanted me to sit down and ask a question, and I guess my question would be, what was the most memorable leadership experience you had in scouting? Was it senior That's patrol? Good. Was it scoutmaster? Was it patrol leader? That's a tough one. Uh, that really is, John. That's... um. You know, I've had so many over the years, and I guess I would say as a youth, uh, senior patrol leader of the troop, nothing really beats it. 
because uh, everything's on your shoulders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to uh, you have to set the example for the the junior scouts. You have to guide the patrol leaders. You have to work with the adult leaders uh, to plan out activities, um, and then that sort of transferred those lessons learned transferred directly over into the Eagle Scout project, which is something that we haven't touched on. But there is a uh, a large Eagle Scout project that's required before you get the rank of Eagle, and that I think is um, that's probably the pinnacle of my leadership experience right there. You know, I could say all kinds of things about my you know professional career, being in the military, being in the Air Force Reserve, all of that. Um, but really, when I look back, you know, leading an Eagle Scout project, having a lasting benefit to the community. Uh, planning it all out, uh, especially working with adults, which is a little intimidating for youth uh, to get all these resources aligned and ready to go for the project itself. Um, That's probably the pinnacle and really one of the fondest memories I have. Time for a quick shout out. Um, I know in my my experience, my scoutmaster, Barry Smith, was uh, one of the most pivotal people in my life, mainly because he recognized that I could be a leader even when I had no clue. And he kind of guided me into situations where I could I could experience that. Uh, is there someone in your life or your scouting career who fits that role that you could kind of name and give them a shout out here and, and for all the world to hear? Uh, absolutely. Two, uh, two people come to mind. One, my father, Tom Batten. Uh, He's still around. I just saw him yesterday, actually. Uh, He was an assistant scoutmaster with the troop, uh, and he was sort of instrumental, uh, just as our scoutmaster was, um, who's the second person. His name was Ken Rarick. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. Uh, But the two of them were great at bringing people out of their shells, as you mentioned. So they they would see potential. uh, They would push you into an area that was uncomfortable. um, Just get you out of your shell and expose you to something new and prove to yourself or let you prove to yourself that you could do something you thought impossible. Yeah. Mine was, uh, my dad, he was a fireman. And, uh, when he, he, when I turned 11, I think when I turned 10, he says, when you turn 11, you're going to go into scouting and you know, I'm the oldest of eight. And so, you know, okay, dad, whatever you say, I'm going into scouting. Didn't know what it was. And, uh, uh, but a bunch of my friends were there, buddies in the neighborhood. And uh, because he was a fireman, he enlisted. My dad was a kind of a leader, even though he was only a fireman. Uh, he uh, he enlisted all these other firemen to come with us. And uh, and they would they would not, you know, we had to do our own thing. We had to do it. They wouldn't, you know, they, they might drive us because we didn't have driver's license at the time. But that was the extent of it. You know, like you were saying, being a quartermaster, Shoot, if if you were in charge of the food and you didn't get the right food or you didn't get enough food or whatever it was, it was on you. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about it realistically, that's a lot of responsibility for a 11, 12, 13 year old kid. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's a great learning experience. And, you know, at the time, I thought a lot of that was on me. But, you know, looking back, I had an entire support structure there to make sure I didn't fail, which is a, a great way to help people learn. 
I think it's natural inclination for young people, particularly teenagers, to be self-centered. And I think that scouting uh, kind of breaks that barrier down because you can't be self-centered in being quartermaster because if you don't take responsibility for taking care of the food or the equipment, you're going to have a horrible camping trip. And, or if, you know, if you, if you, if you're a leader and you decide that you're going on a hike and you get lost, that's not good. Uh, so there's a lot of, a lot of where people start realizing it's not all about them. It's about the group, the patrol, the team that we, we actually do better when we work as a group than an individual. Mm -hmm. No, I agree completely. And one of the things I've always loved about the scout program, um, and it sounds a little bit superficial, but the uniform, I'm a huge believer in wearing a uniform and having the uniform mean something. So the uniform means you're part of something greater, something bigger than yourself. And you have a, a connection to the person next to you also wearing a uniform. So if you've ever been to any of the world or international events uh, with scouting, uh, it's amazing to see people from around the world come together wearing a scout uniform and they're like brothers and sisters. Absolutely. They just, it's wonderful. And it's yeah. a great equalizer as well. Doesn't matter how much money you have or what you can afford. Everyone is dressed the same. Yeah. We went to the, I went to world jamboree. We had a, we had two foreign students at our camp and they called me and he said, Bill, if you're going up to the world jamboree, can you take these two? So I, I, I took uh, one fellow from uh, Dominican Republic and the other fellow was from Egypt. He was Muslim and he did his three days, three prayers. So, you know, some of the parts that we drive through the summit aren't conducive to a Muslim at the time, particularly with nine 11 to be out there doing a prayer. And, uh, we stopped at McDonald's and he washed and changed his clothes. And I said, well, where are you going to do your prayer? He said, I'm going to do it in the uh, the playroom where all the kids are. And I said, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. <laughs> and so I said, let's go outside and find you a quiet spot where you can do it. And I said, by the way, how do you know where Mecca is? He goes, well, I have an app for that. <laughs> <laughs> of course he does. There's an app for everything. <laughs> yeah. So we, we go ahead and do that. And then we get up to the summit and he says, Bill, would you come to our service? You know, because they have the religious tent. There's, I think, 39 different religions in scouting and they have a religious tent and they're all there. And I said, yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to come and see a service. So uh, we rendezvoused at the dining hall because they wanted to go out and hang out with the kids and swap patches. And I said, OK, let's let's, you know, give you like three hours. Let's rendezvous at dining hall, make sure everything's OK. And uh, he comes back after three hours in a United States Boy Scout uniform and he was wearing an Egyptian uniform. So what happened? He said, Oh, I wore my old uniform. I've been hoping to trade this for another uniform. There'll be nobody in Egypt. that will have an American uniform. So I'll be really special. <laughs> this is crazy. You know, John, you were going to say something. I interrupted you. Oh no. I, um, I, I, the one thing I could say about, uh, the quartermaster and learning how to responsibility and the leaders letting, letting you fail a little bit is that there's no greater um, educator than your peers. If you, if you do not buy the right food or the right equipment and they have to go without, then they will be, they will very quickly put you on the straight and narrow. And that's a greater teacher than any adult leader could, could hope to be. Yeah, absolutely. 
And that's something that lasts, that's lifelong. Mm -hmm. So I experienced that in the military multiple different times, uh, even corporate America. You know, it's the same way you get into a team of your peers and get behind closed doors. They'll give you an earful. They'll let you know when things aren't right or when you're screwing up. And, you know, that's, that's a great thing. You know, uh, feedback is a gift. You know, yeah. as long as it's with delivered with good intent, I'll accept it all day long. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. That's 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 a real. And, you know, the other thing, yeah, yeah, go back to the quartermaster. You know, you're a quartermaster and you go, holy cow, I need some help. If you go to a couple of scouts and say, hey, could you help me here? Very rarely will they say no. You know, they're always like, yeah, sure, we'll help you out. And uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's, 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 it's a great organization from that spot. Well, we're getting near the end here. So uh, Josh, we always ask our uh, guest how they find common ground. I'm going to ask John Wilson the same thing since he's now a guest too. So uh, Josh, you're first. So I, starting out in the military, uh, it was sort of a great equalizer. You know, we came from all different walks of life, socioeconomic backgrounds, religions, races. I mean, you name a differentiator, you know, it was represented there. Uh, but at the end of the day, being mission focused uh, or having even a common enemy, you know, which is associated with the mission. Uh, so going in the military, we had you know, our, our drill sergeants. That was kind of a common enemy. Uh, the weather was a common enemy. Uh, and our mission was to get through that. Uh, and that's no different than any other position I've had throughout life. You know, whatever the mission of the organization is, is sort of the focus uh, for everyone. And I think that's a, a great tool or a great mechanism for people to ignore those differences and to find that common ground. Because you're really there to succeed in whatever the mission is or whatever the intent is for that group coming together. Maybe it's a project at work. Uh, maybe... A, Use uh, family life as an example. My wife and I work as a team and we find common ground every single day to make sure that our kids are safe and secure. Uh, it could be any number of things, but finding whatever that, that purpose is and focusing on the purpose and ignoring all that extraneous, different stuff associated with the individuals, uh, I think that's really the best way to do it. Good. Very good. John? Well, I think the most important thing is to uh, really practice and learn how to listen. Once again, I think that's one of those leadership skills. Uh, and we have to listen to each other. And uh, the most, most important aspect of that is when you're listening, listen to understand the other person and not just to formulate a response. Very good. You know, my good buddy uh, Odell says, I'm questioning you not as in a witness stand, but I'm questioning you for better understanding. And I think that's where we'll leave this. We all want a better understanding. Josh, thanks for your time. Thanks for your service. Yeah, thank you for your service. No, thanks so much for having me today. I appreciate it. Find Bill and Odell online at thecommonground.show. This podcast is a production of BG Ad Group. Darren Sutherland, Executive Director. Jacob Sutherland, Director. Matt Golden, News Director. Chin Ray Zhang, Director Producer. And Jason Gentarola, Audio Producer. All rights reserved. This podcast is brought to you by Yes Weekly. 
the triad's largest circulated and best read weekly magazine. You can also find us online at yesweekly.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes Weekly, your trusted news leader for local arts, entertainment, music, food, and more for nearly 18 years. Whether you're a big, medium, or small business, managing and growing the bottom line is important. Focus CFO brings the experience and financial acumen of a Fortune 100 chief financial officer to your company at a fraction of the cost. PL help, internal reporting processes, or any business transitions or events. Focus CFO will help you and your team have a CFO in your company's back pocket. Focus CFO. Learn more at focuscfo.com. 